So who doesn't love starting their day off with drug math? This is awesome, isn't it? So thank you for coming. I appreciate it. This is my favorite thing in the world to talk about. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I still don't have anything to disclose. All right, these are my objectives. We're going to use a kind of a fun approach to looking at some important principles in doing opioid conversions and titrations, as the title suggests. So we're going to look at a bunch of scenarios. I'm going to have you determine where did we go wrong, and then how could we do a better job. All righty, you ready? This is going to be so much fun. I'm excited. Scenario one. And I had a lot of fun with these cases because I named people in my life. For example, in this one, this, the, the star of this one is a golden retriever. Uh, my golden retriever is named Josie, and she loves to do what the golden retriever does here. So Ms. Evans is a 48-year-old woman with breast cancer. Thankfully, she has minimal pain and is well-controlled on acetaminophen 1000Q6 with an occasional ibuprofen. She's at home with her daughter one day when the family golden retriever, Buttercup, grabs Ms. Evans' slipper and starts to abscond with it. Ms. Evans makes a grab to rescue her slipper and experiences a searing pain in her right humerus. The pain is so horrific, it literally takes her breath away, but when she can breathe again, she starts screaming. Ms. Evans' daughter immediately loads mom into the car, and off they go to the ED with Ms. Evans screaming hysterically the whole way. When she gets to the ED, she is immediately taken to an exam room, and she tells the ED doctor, Dr. Marcus Welby, those of us of a certain age remember Dr. Welby, 29 and holding, that her pain is so horrific she can't even rate it. Dr. Welby sits by Ms. Evans' bed and begins to administer IV morphine one milligram every minute for 10 minutes. Then after a five-minute respite, she rates her humorous pain as a 9 out of 10. So he goes through another cycle, giving one milligram every minute for 10 minutes. After another five-minute respite, she said the pain is a 6 or a 7, but it could certainly be better. So he starts a third cycle, one milligram every minute for 10 minutes. Five minutes after that cycle, Ms. Evans smiles at Dr. Welby and says, no wonder everybody loves you, Dr. Welby. My pain is now a 2. You are an angel. Dr. Welby smiles avuncularly. That word was made for him, wasn't it? Okay, so avuncular. And Ms. Evans and orders an x-ray of her humerus now that she's comfortable. Off she goes to radiology. She has to wait in the hall for 30 minutes because radiology is backed up, of course. As they wheel her in to have her x-ray done, the x-ray technician notices Ms. Evans is non-responsive. Holy moly, cries the x-ray technician who pulls the ripcord to initiate a code. People come running from all over, and Ms. Evans requires two doses of naloxone to bring her back. Wow, that was a close one, says the shaky x-ray technician. Dr. Welby, what did you do? So what's the sitch here? A, each individual dose of morphine was too high. It should have been half a milligram, not a milligram. B, Dr. Welby should have known the protocol was never more than two cycles. C, each cycle should not have exceeded five milligrams. He gave 10. Or D, he should have stopped when the patient rated the pain as a six or a seven. What do you think? Who thinks it's A? Any Bs, Cs, Ds? And most of you didn't vote. Wow, this is startling. I think she's going to die since you didn't vote. So clearly, he was too darn nice, right? So by giving one milligram of IV morphine every minute for 10 minutes, he was doing some major dose stacking. And this is the protocol from Cleveland Clinic that's been published. So this is one approach to treating severe acute onset pain in a patient who's opiate naive. The NCC guidelines also have an approach that we could use too. Um, when he started the second cycle of morphine, the second 10 milligram round, the first, very first injection he had given was just now starting to think about hitting its stride. So major dose stacking. And by the time he had given 30 milligrams, 
really only a tiny portion of that amount had reached um, the peak clinical effect. Unfortunately, it did all reach a cr critical peak effect when the patient was unattended in the hall. So he should have stopped after two cycles. So the point here is not to get the pain down to like everything is coming up roses. It's to get the, the pain down enough that the patient could tolerate imaging. And by the way, the humerus pain was a pathologic fracture from metastatic breast cancer. All right, good job, men. All right, I love this case. I have so much fun with these. Mr. Morgan's a 44-year-old man diagnosed with a giant tumor. Wow, look at the size of that sucker. In the left thoracic cavity, that sounds pretty giant. He underwent surgery and the tumor, which was adherent to the left upper lobe of the lung, mediastinal pleura, and parietal pleura, was completely resected with combined resection of part of the left upper lobe of the lung. The surgeon was generous with the post-op analgesic plan, knowing that post-thoracotomy pain can be profound. Look at the kitty, oh, the pain. Oh, the agony. So here is how much IV hydromorphone he used post-op. So hour zero to 12, he used 24 milligrams. Then he went down to 20. So as you can see, each 12-hour period, he used less and less IV hydromorphone, which is to be expected. On the morning of post-op day four, the surgeon is discharging the patient, but the surgeon is mindful of the CDC recommendations for the management of acute pain, which say clinicians should prescribe the lowest effective dose of immediate release opioids and should prescribe no greater quantity than needed for the expected duration of pain severe enough to require opioids. Three days or less will often be sufficient. More than seven days will rarely be needed. So that's what the CDC says. So keeping this in mind, the surgeon gives Mrs. Morgan a prescription for her hubs for oxycodone 5 acetaminophen 325 one tab Q4 is needed quantity 18. The surgeon also reminds Mrs. Morgan to pick up some polyethylene glycol while she's at the pharmacy because nobody wants to be straining to stool post-thoracotomy. How nice. So the next morning, Mrs. Morgan contacts the surgeon's office demanding to speak to the surgeon. My husband is in excruciating pain. He's screaming and crying. We've been up all night. What kind of monster are you? These pills barely touch the pain. I even gave him two at a time over the night and it didn't help. Now he's complaining of stomach pain. Should I bring him to the emergency room? What should I do? The surgeon is taken aback. He wonders if Mr. Morgan, or maybe even Mrs. Morgan, is a drug seeker, or did the patient have a history of, of illicit drug use that the surgeon was unaware of? Wow, this is perplexing. So what's the sitch here? Did you hear the news that Jean-Luc is going to be filming another Star Trek? Can you stand it? Oh my God, this, is like, this has been a game changer for me. I can't wait. I love Jean-Luc. I wish I had a number one, don't you? Wouldn't you love to have a number one? Make it happen, number one. Of course, my husband would swear he's my number one, but anyway. What's the sitch here? The surgeon overprescribed, and the patient is now experiencing opioid-induced hyperalgesia. B, let's blame the pharmacy, because everybody loves to blame pharmacy. They made a dispensing error. C, the surgeon took the CDC guidelines a little too seriously. Or D, the surgeon probably didn't do any equi-analgesia calculations, just defaulted to the lowest dose of Percocet. So who votes for any A's or B's in the room? No, any C's in the room? And how about D? Yeah, well, you know what? I think it's C and D. <laughs> I mean, the guidelines are that, just the guidelines. So it's not set in concrete. Um, what's wrong with this picture? So the patient clearly is in pain crisis, maybe even opioid withdrawal a little bit. To give the surgeon credit, um, she was trying to be a good academic citizen and follow the CDC guidelines, but Mrs. Morgan wants to kill them both right now. So if the patient had received six milligrams of IV hydromorphone in the last 12 hours prior to discharge, we can extrapolate that and say six milligrams over 12 hours is about 12 milligrams over 24 to calculate our 24 hour equivalent. So this conversion is from 
from uh, the second edition of the book that I wrote, so it is a little bit of a game changer. So X milligrams of oral oxycodone over 12 milligrams of IV hydromorphone, which is what we're saying would have been 24 hours of use. And from the equi-analgesic chart, 20 milligrams of oral oxycodone is two milligrams of IV hydromorphone. And that is that it, that equivalency comes out of the data from MD Anderson, where they looked at thousands of patients converting from IV hydromorphone to oral hydromorphone, oral morphine, oral oxycodone. Anyway, you cross multiply, you divide, it comes out to be 120 milligrams of oral oxycodone in 24 hours. And the surgeon sent the patient home on a maximum of 30 milligrams a day. So no wonder his pain is not controlled. And he was complaining of nausea. I don't know, maybe it's just all the excitement of having horrible pain. Maybe he is having a little bit of withdrawal. So I agree, I had given you two approaches here, and I, I do favor the second approach, but theoretically, the surgeon could have used, knowing, I actually talked to a couple surgeon friends and said, I've always heard that post-thoracotomy pain is the most painful surgical pain, and they all agreed it was. So I said, you know, it wouldn't, the world would not end if the doctor had written for Oxycontin 10 and said, I want you to take three tabs Q12 day one, two tabs Q12 day two, and then one tab Q12 day three, so that he could sleep through the night a little bit. But then also give oxycodone 10 or 15 Q4 as needed. Or the surgeon could have just gone with oxycodone 15 milligrams and said one to two tablets every four hours as needed, explaining you'll probably need it pretty regularly the first few days and then taper off. And of course, you could always supplement with acetaminophen or maybe even a non-steroidal if it's appropriate. And it, he may even require more than the three to seven days. Any comments on that one? That was a fun one, wasn't it? Okay. All righty. Mrs. Gladson is a 78-year-old. I love this case. Oh, my gosh, I love this case. Mrs. Gladson is a 78-year-old woman diagnosed with end-stage hepatic cancer. She was admitted to hospice on MS Cotton, 15Q12, oral morphine solution, 5Q3. The hospice nurse says the patient's having a pain crisis. She's taking her MS Cotton as directed with several doses of oral morphine, but no relief. The patient rates the pain as greater than 10 on a 10-point scale. Maybe she's a drama queen. I don't know. But the family is insistent that she be admitted to the hospice inpatient unit for better care. She's transported to the unit. She arrives at 6 p.m. That's important, 6 p.m. The attending on call is Dr. Doogie Hauser. He is so excited. This is his first position post-palliative care fellowship. He is stoked. So he calculates the patient was getting about 40 milligrams of oral morphine in the past 24 hours, which he converts, which is about 16 milligrams of IV morphine per day, or about 0.6 milligrams an hour. So since she's rating her pain as 500 out of 10, he says, let's give a two and a half milligram loading dose, and we'll double that amount, which is appropriate for severe pain, to 1.2 milligrams an hour with an order to titrate to comfort per nursing judgment. So the family stays with the patient and keeps the nurse informed as to the patient's response to the morphine infusion. The family is concerned she's still complaining of pain that she rates as 9 out of 10 at 8 hours, 8, 8 p.m. rather, two hours after it started. So the nurse increases the infusion to 3 milligrams an hour and the clinician bolus to 5. At 10 p.m., now we're four hours in, the family reports the patient is still grimacing and crying out, so the nurse repeats the 5 milligram bolus and increases the continuous infusion to 5 milligrams an hour. The patient finally seems to settle down and the family leaves around midnight. When the nurse checks on Mrs. Glad and at 3 a.m. she is non-responsive even to sternal rub. Her respiratory rate is six breaths per minute with periods of apnea. She has pinpoint pupils and the nurse calls Dr. Hauser in a panic. So what is the sitch here? A, I bet the family increased the infusion before they left. It's all their fault. 
B, the nurse was trigger happy with that hourly clinician bolus. C, Dr. Dowser, you thought you were ready for prime time, but no, you incorrectly calculated the starting dose of morphine, bolus, and infusion. Or D, the infusion rate was titrated incorrectly, i.e. too quickly. What do you think? Who votes for D? Yeah, so what, is, what led to this problem? Can anybody say, how did we get into this pickle? What is the one thing he did wrong? So the family didn't do anything. The nurse gave the hourly bolus. And I do love an aggressive hourly bolus that's given by the nurse who can do a good assessment. The math was fine. So it was Dr. Hauser writing titrate to comfort. This is outside of a nurse's scope of practice. It's outside of a patient's scope of practice. So no prescriber is supposed to even write one to two acetaminophen every four hours as needed. So you have to be more specific. So the infusion started at 6 p.m., increased at 8, and again at 10. So, you know, hopefully everybody in this room, we're all in the pink of health. Our half-life of morphine is about two to three hours. People who have terminal, terminal illness like cancer, for the, like this lady, is probably closer to five hours. So even if you're okay with saying, I'm good with getting to three half-lives, 87.5% of the way to steady state, or four half-lives, which is 93.75%, that's going to take 15 to 20 hours, not four hours. So clearly this was increased way too aggressively too quickly. So we need to recognize two issues here. He really was 14 when he played this role. I had to go look for the picture and look it up. That's hilarious. We need to fully appreciate the clinical impact of the current continuous infusion before we increase it. And we want to get pretty much all the way to steady state if we can, but we don't want the patient to suffer while we're waiting to achieve at least pseudo steady state. Doogie, doogie, doogie. This is why we never let 14-year-olds be doctors ever, ever, ever. So if the answer is, yes, I do happen to look pretty darn good in orange, why do you ask? Because if you write this order, titrate to comfort, you're going to jail. So there you go. We actually had, this case was prompted by um, a hospice that I do some work with, and they had one prescriber who was very fond of writing, nurse to titrate to comfort, and we noticed that we had uh, a disproportionate number of patients dying at three in the morning, but they were really comfortable. What can I say? Whew. So again, the general population, the half-life of morphine is about two to three hours. Hydromorphine, the same, maybe a little bit less. Cancer patients, about five hours. Liver impairment, eight or more hours. So if you, again, a half-life is how long it takes to either eliminate half of the drug or to accumulate half of the drug if you're on the way up. So as you can see here, um, so this is just a different way of writing it. As you can see here, if, if, you, if you say, I'm pretty comfortable getting 93% of the way there, uh, in the normal population, that's eight hours, in eight to 12 hours. So to be very aggressive, it would be to increase your continuous infusion at eight to 12 hours. But frankly, I would rather rate, wait 12 to 24 hours. So the, the rule I like to roll with is don't increase that continuous infusion before 24 hours. That would be my preference. So play it again, Sam. How could he have done a better job? He correctly calculated the dose of oral morphine and converted it to parenteral. He doubled it given the severity for pain. He correctly ordered a clinician bolus. He shouldn't have said titrate to comfort it. Better order would have been administer two and a half milligrams of IV morphine now, begin continuous infusion at 1.2 milligrams an hour, reassess pain every 30 minutes times three, and repeat that two and a half milligram IV bolus if pain is decreased but not adequately controlled or increase it to five milligrams if pain unchanged or increased. If pain is not adequately controlled after three IV boluses, contact the prescriber. Do not increase the continuous infusion before 8 a.m. morning rounds, which would be 14 hours. So I know that's a lot to write, a lot more than titrate to comfort, but is there any doubt about what we should do? 
No, so it's much, much greater clarity there. Love that case. All righty. I love this one too. Mr. Morgenstern is a 58-year-old man with end-stage lung cancer being discharged from the hospital to home hospice. He's re- and I named this case after my very, very dear friend, Dr. Mellor Davis, who is literally the smartest person in the universe. When I lecture with him, he'll say something, and he is so smart that I have to do the interpretive dance to kind of explain it in English because he's so flipping smart. So I named this after him because he would never in eight zillion years do what I have him do in this case. He was my most harsh critic for this book and tough love is a beautiful thing. Anyway, it's a very complex opioid regimen and he wants to switch the whole red hot mess to long and short acting morphine. So the patient's five foot eight was 150 pounds, so a decent body habitus and can swallow tablets and capsules. The patient is currently getting transdermal fentanyl 50 mics, Oxycontin 20 Q12, hydromorphone four milligrams IV Q4 is needed getting five a day and Vicodin or Lortab, which the patient is not getting. So Dr. Davis decides this is a pretty complex calculation, so he whips out his iPhone and uses an opioid conversion app, which I think is the work of the devil, but that's just me. I hope Jeff Feud is not here this morning since he wrote one. Uh, the app provides the following conversion information. The, the app says transdermal fentanyl 50 would be 180 of oral morphine. Oxycontin 20 Q12 would be 60 of oral morphine. Uh, 20 milligrams of IV dilaudid would be 400 of oral morphine for a grand total of 600 milligrams of oral morphine. So Dr. Davis puts the patient on MSContin 200 milligrams by mouth every eight hours with MSIR 60 every two hours as needed. So he did the math correctly. The app told him it was 640, so he put the patient on 600 with an appropriate breakthrough dose. The patient starts on this regimen, but within a day or so is extremely lethargic. And according to Mrs. Morgenstern, nobody likes a drunk monkey, and that's what he is right now. Dr. Davis is shocked. I used an app. The calculation is impeccable. So A, I give really good hints on quizzes, by the way. Just because there's an app for it doesn't make it right. B, Dr. Davis has no idea what assumptions the app is making. C, using an app without doing the math yourself is the lazy pants approach to calculations. Or D, all of the above are true, true, true. Who's with me on number D? Letter D. Yeah, uh uh-huh. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of apps because I think people... There's nothing inherently wrong with apps. Um, if you were going to use one, I probably would use Jeff Fudens from Practical Pain Management. It's probably got the best data behind it. But people tend to turn off their brain and they lose their sense of does that look right? Case in point, I had a pharmacy student rotation with me years ago. And at the end of team meeting, the nurse said, hey, could you do this conversion for me? I said, hey, Junior, this is great. This is right up your alley. You do this for the nurse. Oh, no problem. I've got an app. I said, of course you have an app. So he whips open his phone. He's clicking away over there and he says, wow. I said, what? Wow, what did you get? He said, he turns around the phone. He said, it's like close to a million milligrams of morphine a day. I said, well, what do you think of that? He said, we're going to have to order more morphine. You are too dumb to breathe. You are failing so bad, it's not even funny. Anyway, so... Dr. Davis goes back to the website where the app was. And you know, what's interesting is in our online master's degree in our pain class, the very first week, I have a discussion question and I say, what do you think of online opioid conversion apps? Okay, enter your response, what you think about that. Now here's three very simple conversion problems. Go find three online apps and do the math. 
and then tell me again. What do you think of online conversion calculators? And you would be amazed. It's, we're actually collecting that data and collating it because even from student to student to student using the same calculator, you should see the disparity. And between different calculators, it blows your mind. Anyway, most of them will not tell you the assumptions that go into building their algorithm. But apparently this one did. <clears throat> so after looking forever, he finds the equianalgesic conversion ratio used by the app. So this is the conversion chart that everybody and their mother has used for probably the last 20 years. And this is what I used in the first edition of my book. So what I really want to point out is everybody and their mother says 1.5 milligrams of IV dilaudid is 30 milligrams of oromorphine, a 20 to 1. I double-dog dare you to find me the data that actually shows in real life it really is 20 to 1 or 1 to 20, depending on which direction you're going. And for transdermal fentanyl, the, the app said it uses the mid-range of the duragesic, the innovator products, um, recommendation. So here is from the Duragesic package insert, and they say if the dose is between 135 or 224 of oral morphine, go to a 50 mic patch. So the people who developed this app used it in reverse. Is it intended to be used in reverse? No. Even the Duragesic people say, look, this is really conservative, So, and it's only intended to go to transdermal fentanyl, never off. So the app made a serious miscalculation in making that assumption. So instead, uh, this is the chart that I've come up with for the second edition. So this tends to make people want to vomit blood. When I made, instead of 10 to 30, it's 10 to 25. And I actually had a doctor say to me, well, I'm sure you're like really smart and stuff, but I can't divide by two and a half in my head. And I was like, oh, for God's sake, call a third grader. They'll do it for you, okay? <laughs> Use your freaking iPhone, for God's sake. But the thing that really makes people want to jump is... I change it to 25 for one thing. They, I can show you a ton of data showing from IV, from parenteral morphine to oral morphine is anywhere from 10 to 20 to 10 to 30. So I'm on very firm ground calling it 25. Why did I do 25? To make the two milligrams of IV hydromorphone be equal to 25 milligrams of oral morphine. Because Dr. Akila Reddy from MD Anderson in that study looking at thousands of patients found that the ratio really is about 1 to 12. So this works out beautifully. The only data I don't have is going backwards, proving conclusively in real time that it works in reverse. But MD Anderson has used the 1 to 10 to and from for a decade with extraordinary results. Plus, we do know that instead of saying this is five-fold difference, this has never been five-fold. It always has been oral hydromorphone is 50% bioavailable. We have data from 30, 35 years ago conclusively showing that. And I still use the tried and true uh, Bill Breitbart method of transdermal fentanyl mics per hour is 50% of the total daily dose of the oral morphine equivalent. So you can see there's a big difference. If you look at the app-derived data, they said the transdermal fentanyl was worth 180. I say it's worth 100. Uh, Oxycontin, they said 60. I said 50. But here's the big one. Using the 20 to 1 versus the 1 to 12, 400 versus 250, so Dr. Davis got 640, and I got, I got 400 using the better data that we have now. So again, you know, I'm fine with you using a calculator, but please do the calculation yourself first, and you can use the app to check yourself if you would like. Uh, and not all of the apps allow you to dose reduce when you're doing a conversion from one molecule to a different molecule. And please retain your sense of, does that look right? So play it again, Sam. He should have used a better equianalgesic table. He should have done it himself. Um, and eat, whether you're using an app or you're using a cool table like the one I have in my second edition, none of these 
will take into account things like the patient's young versus old. I was just talking to a nurse last night. We have a patient who's dying in his 30s of a glioblastoma, and the nurse and I were saying, how long do they think the patient has? Well, the, the point is he's in the pink of health aside from what's killing him. Do you know what I mean? So young patients tend to sometimes die a very hard death. But anyways, the patient frail, are they robust? Are they in pain, not in pain? And you can always call a good-looking pharmacist because we are very odd and we love doing drug math. Okay. Scenario number five. Are we having a great time? Yes. Absolutely. Who doesn't love drug math? What's wrong with those people? Mrs. Matterhorn is an 82-year-old woman with multiple comorbidities, including uterine cancer, post-stroke pain, diabetes, heart disease, OA everywhere, and Alzheimer's dementia. She lives in a long-term care facility because her care is too great for her family to handle at home. Her usual blood pressure is 105 over 70. Heart rate 68, respiratory 16, she is five foot nothing, and bless her heart, she weighs 86 pounds. Her appetite is poor, and obviously she appears to be malnourished. She's been admitted to hospice under the uterine cancer diagnosis. She's getting MS cotton 15Q12 with oral morphine solution, which she's not using on admission, but as her dementia worsened, she kept forgetting to take it, which is why she was uh, admitted to the long-term care facility. So on admission to the facility, they switched her to transdermal fentanyl 12 mics an hour with oral morphine solution for breakthrough, 5Q2 PRN. The hospice nurse, Stephanie, observes that Mrs. Matterhorn is still exhibiting signs of pain, even though she's not verbal. So Stephanie apparently is a smart cookie. She used the checklist of nonverbal pain indicators and decides the patient is in moderate pain. So the patch was increased to 25 mics an hour on day three and again to 50 mics on day five. So when they have a hospice team meeting, Stephanie reports to team meeting that the patient still doesn't seem to be getting the relief from the patch that you would expect. So based on the patient using transdermal fentanyl 50 mics an hour, the doc switches the patient to MS Cotton 60Q12 because 50 mic patch would be about 100 milligrams of oral morphine, and the doc bumped it up a little bit on top of that because the patient was in pain uh, and continued with the 15Q2 as needed for breakthrough pain. So Stephanie was instructed to remove the patch and start the MS Cotton 12 hours later. Within 24 to 36 hours, the patient is completely zonked and very hard to wake up. The long-term care nurse says she can't even wake her up to give her the MS content. What is the dealio here? So what's wrong with this picture? A, the patient was never an appropriate candidate for transdermal fentanyl. B, the patient is wasted and cachectic. Even if it was appropriate, it made her a poor candidate for transdermal fentanyl. C, it was titrated too quickly. D, the conversion off transdermal fentanyl was incorrectly calculated. Or E, all the above, duh. So what are you thinking? Are we all on board with E? Could I have made this any dumber? I mean, I tried hard. All right, so what's the scoop? You have to be taking, per the FDA, at least 60 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent a day for at least a week before you can switch to transdermal fentanyl. Now, my resident from, who just finished in uh, June did a big study looking at a big claims database of like 8 billion claims, and that rarely happens, which is pretty, pretty disturbing. But nonetheless, um, if you're... We have a rule in my hospice that if somebody's admitted to hospice, and my current resident this year is actually looking at this, admitted on transdermal fentanyl or methadone, the admission nurse has to ask, how long have you been on this and for how long? And if the answer is less than a week at this dose, we have to figure out what they were getting prior to being switched to the transdermal fentanyl or the methadone because it's not, I was actually asked to be a, a drug expert in a legal case years ago where, uh, I won't go into all the details, but the physician slapped a 25 mic patch on this little old lady who was opioid naive, admitted her to the hospice inpatient unit and she died 18 hours later. And the husband sued for wrongful death, suing the hospital, the hospice, and two physicians. 
Americans. And I said, you don't want me to be your drug expert. That's against package labeling. Did it help her out the door? And was it a kindness, in my opinion, because she was suffering so badly? Absolutely. But they won millions and millions and millions of dollars. So the rule in our pr program is, you know, we want to make sure they were converted appropriately because if they slap a batch on inappropriately and she dies under our care, we're going down the river. Uh, also, she was cachectic and unlikely to get the full benefit, and they kept titrating up and up and up, and they titrated too quickly. You can increase it day three, and then every six days thereafter. And probably the most egregious, the physician gave her full credit for the transdermal fentanyl when converting off and gave her a bump up on top of that. And she was actually transitioned a little bit quickly to MS Cotton, although I do the 12-hour thing too. So we know about cachexia. What is the scoop here? Now, transdermal fentanyl is a good delivery system. I'm not a huge fan, but it does have its role, in my opinion, for people who can't swallow. Fentanyl is an awesome drug. It's up to 100 times the potency of morphine. It is extensively metabolized in the liver to inactive metabolites, so it makes it a good choice in people who have renal impairment. It's very fat-soluble, very large volume of distribution, and importantly, it's highly bound to albumin, very highly protein bound. Lots of different routes of administration, although we can't afford the transmucosal. And obviously it's indicated for the management of pain in opioid tolerant patients. Again, that's 60 milligrams a day. So let's look at this little case. 72-year-old man admitted to hospice with end-stage liver cancer, lives alone, caregiver visits daily, has an order for morphine 5Q4 is needed. The caregiver gives one dose, but then he forgets to take it. So the, the RN suggests transdermal fentanyl 12. What do you think about that? Is that allowed? No, it's not allowed. It's tricky. So why do we even have a 12 mic patch if you have to be taking at least 60 milligrams of oromorphine equivalent a day for a week, which would buy you a 25 mic patch? So why did they even come out with a 12 mic patch? Any thoughts? So you can combine it with other patch strengths is their answer. Did you know there are three really goofy strength patches on the market, which I did not know until somebody reviewed that chapter for me and said, hey, you missed three patch strengths? And I'm like, get out of town. It's like... Um, 37 and a half and 62.5 and 87 and a half. I didn't even know this. It was like, this is bizarro. So the 12 mic patch was to combine. Now, if we were in Scotland, and I wish we were, because Scotland's a beautiful country. I've been twice. It's an awesome vacation destination. The Scottish Palliative Care Association recommends you can start with a 12 mic patch, but not if you live and practice in the United States. So that was inappropriate. Um, so again, 60 milligram oromorphine equivalent or the same of another opioid. So he's not an appropriate candidate. Also, of course, you can't use it for acute pain or opioid naive. We have two different kinds of formulation, the gel containing and the drug in adhesive. It's absorbed by passive diffusion. We have the five main strengths and then the three goofy strengths. It's a Q72, but about 20% of people that third day, they got nothing. High degree of variability in the bioavailability of this. You know where you apply it and so forth. Um, temperature of 104, you increase your serum concentrations by 30%. And I have had patients put a heating pad over their patch to get a little kick because they figured this out. I do use Breitbart's method is we take the total daily dose of oral morphine per day, divide by two, and that's your transdermal fentanyl. So 100 milligrams of oral morphine would be a 50 mic patch. So if we look at this little old lady on MS Cotton 30QA with Oxy 10Q2 taking four a day, she's on 140 of oral morphine, would be 70 um, mics an hour. So they put her on a 75 mic patch and then I, I what do you use for breakthrough i don't use transmucosal fentanyl we still do 10 to 15 percent of the total daily oral morphine dose but what about somebody who's built like this what do you think about transdermal fentanyl in someone like this no why are you saying no 
Yeah, so what, what, what is it about that? What is it about cachexia that makes transdermal fentanyl not a great choice? It's not really so, it may be somewhat of an absorption issue, but the bigger issue, when someone is malnourished, their albumin tends to go in the extravascular space, and guess what's bound to the albumin? The fentanyl. So what, what amount you do absorb is hanging out in the extravascular space, not the intravascular space, where it can get to the mu receptors. So it's just not a good look. So this was just another example of that. So the bottom line on case five here, if the family had had a paid caregiver all along, the caregiver could have given that MS content and the breakthrough morphine and the patient would have been just fine. Um, but in this case, the patient was not a candidate for transdermal fentanyl. It was increased too quickly. The conversion off. So if this were a real case and we were converting off of transdermal fentanyl, I would have gone back to the MS content 15Q12 that she was getting before. And sometimes if, if they had not been on anything else before, I would just ignore it and start over like they were opioid naive and be crazy generous with the breakthrough. That's the rule that I roll with. Anything that's scheduled, I'm very conservative. And then I'm lunatic generous with the breakthrough. I don't want anybody to suffer because... I'm a card-carrying weenie. This is a real case. This one I almost went to jail on. This is about 15 years ago when I really was getting into the methadone game. So you're cruising around the Beltway one day, doing your nails and eating a donut, when the cell phone rings. You answer the phone. It's Amanda, one of the hospice nurses you work with, and she was out of state. I work with a national program. I've got this older woman who I think would really benefit from methadone. Can you help me do the conversion? She's 78 years old. She's cared for by her son. She's only receiving morphine oral solution as needed for pain, taking five milligrams a dose. He tells me he's giving it to her every four hours around the clock, and occasionally an extra, extra dose, so 10 milligrams, but she's still having a lot of pain. The patient, Mrs. Stevenson, has a diagnosis of colon cancer, but no other conditions or meds that would preclude the use of methadone. The nurse tells you she, too, observes the patient grimacing, guarding, and bracing when she provides care to the patient. She moans and groans, so the nurse is totally on board. This lady's having pain. So the total daily dose of morphine is 30 to 40, so you can tell this is an old case. I recommend a 3Q12. Today, I would probably say 1Q12. I've gotten more and more conservative over the years. And by the way, if you have not seen the awesome, awesome paper that uh, we published, it was an international group, and I led this group in uh, the safe and effective use of methadone in hospice and palliative care. I'm happy to share that link with you. Anyway, so I tell the nurse, you know, let me know how you do. I always sign off with that. It's delivered midday. She starts immediately. After 24 hours, Amanda calls me and says, oh, you are a rock star. This is really a true case. Mrs. Stevenson is calm, no signs of pain or distress. She's a little sleepy, but she wakes right back up. The son is delighted. You're delighted. Amanda's delighted. Everybody's wearing their happy pants. So you say to the nurse, keep me posted. The next day she calls you and says, well, her pain is really well controlled, but she's really getting sleepy. Maybe she was sleep deprived before because of the pain, and now she's catching up. So you agree that was the sitch, and you tell her to stay the course. The next day Amanda calls you, and she really did say, this to me she's like so like you're like really nice but are you sure you know what you're doing girl I was like oh my gosh what do you mean she's like her respiratory rate is down to 10 or 12 and I cannot wake her up so what's going on so I was like oh my god did I I almost killed this little old lady what did I do I rethought everything I said I don't know what I did wrong I would do it again if you called me I said but clearly she is uh, toxic let's hold it and she didn't need naloxone uh, let's get continuous care in there uh, and then if we need to we can certainly give them naloxone so, so what happened a did I use the wrong conversion calculation given her age B did I use the wrong conversion calculation given her total daily dose C did Amanda make a mistake and tell me the wrong amount that she was getting per day or do D no clue who's with me on D
I was firmly in the D camp. The plot thickens. Three days later, Amanda calls me and says, hey, so you're not going to believe this, but you know that 30 to 40 milligrams of oral morphine a day I told you the son was giving her? Turns out he wasn't giving her any morphine. He just didn't want us to think he was a bad son. So I wanted to like drive to Boston and strangle the son at that point. Holy moly, that's insane. But should I have known better? Yes, Amanda and I both should have known better. You never, ever want to be a rock star on day two with methadone. You don't want to be a rock star or at least day three, preferably day four or day five. But I didn't have any reason to suspect that Amanda was telling me wrong or the son was telling Amanda wrong. Amanda could have asked for any medication administration records the son was keeping, but if he's going to lie to the nurse, he probably wasn't keeping any records, or he could have made those up too. Um, but again, the only clue was when she had complete pain relief at 24 hours that, and the patient was sleepy was not a good sign. As a matter of fact, if we have somebody who's like super well controlled and a little on the sleepy side on methadone and maybe the prescriber is going to add fluconazole for a week, sometimes we empirically back off a little bit because it's such a strong enzyme inhibitor. Uh, so again, we use ridiculously low starting doses of methadone. We will use the oral solution, obviously. Um, I've had doctors mock me when I would say something like methadone 1Q12 and say, how are you going to do that? Going to get at your whittling knife? No, I'm going to ask you to write an order for the solution, goofball. Oh, okay. <laughs> get my whittling knife out. I'm going to show you what I'm going to do with that whittling knife. Anyway. This is a pocket card that I developed. So um, I do think methadone is the finest drug in the universe. If I could get a combination drug for hospice patients, it would be dexamethawana S. What do you think? Decadron, methadone, cannabis, and senna. My work here is done. Whoo, baby. Just put that bad boy in public water and we will all die happy. Anyway, um, in that position paper I was talking about, we talk about when is it appropriate to do EKG monitoring and palliative care for the patient, the, still the, the purpose, the goal is a cure, um, so they're actively aggressive, uh, pursuing therapy, follow the same guidelines that the American Pain Society put forth about monitoring the EKG, but the closer they get to just you know comfort care and hospice, for example, we just look at risk factors, so hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, family history, and so forth. We say for opioid-naive patients, which includes people up to 60 milligrams a day of oral morphine equivalent, start anywhere up to 7.5 milligrams a day, and I got to tell you, we start a lot of little old people on 1 milligram Q12, which is very, very low dose. Um, and then for opioid tolerant patients, we say if they're between 60 and 199 milligrams of oral morphine and they're under 65, we do a 10 to 1 conversion. If they're over 200 milligrams or over 65, we do a 20 to 1. But you have to temper that with common sense. If somebody's on a very low dose of morphine and they happen to have turned 65 yesterday, that is going to calculate to a lower dose than you would do if they were opioid naive, for example. And then I'm always very careful when the nurse calls me and says the patient is anywhere from 63 to 67. I'll ask you, are they a young 63 or an old 63? And nurses completely get that and they're totally on board when I ask that question. You don't want to increase the dose before 5 to 7 days. And this is another one that people have a hard time following. If the patient's on less than 30 milligrams a day of oral methadone, your increase should not exceed 5 milligrams a day in total. Once they get to 30 milligrams a day, then you can increase by 10 milligrams a day in total. Maybe a smidge more if they're in a hospital or an inpatient unit where you can monitor them carefully. Uh, so you do want to be very careful with that. And don't forget about drugs that interact with methadone. Everything from soup to nuts interacts with methadone. Just think of the three A's. So I, I ask about anti-infectives, uh, antidepressants, and amiodarone. And that's 90% of the drugs you have to worry about. Scenario seven. 
32-year-old woman with end-stage cervical cancer referred to hospice. On admission, she was getting IV morphine. This is a true story, too. 30 an hour with a 10-milligram bolus Q15, which she's using once or twice an hour. Uh, her 24-hour IV morphine is 1,080 milligrams, which is almost 3 grams of oral morphine a day. That's a lot of morphine. The attending says, this is ridiculous. She can swallow. She's got a fair prognosis. Let's switch her to methadone. So he, Dr. Rosenthal asked you to do the calculation. There's like a million different ways to do it in the literature. So a very popular one is the AN-RINDI method, which is 3, 5, 8, 10, 12, 15, or 20 to 1, depending. So clearly she's on over 1,000 milligrams, so we go with a 20 to 1, which calculates to 135 of oral methadone a day. The patient is at home. She refuses to come in. She has um, triplets. And she said, I am not going in the hospital because I have things to do before I die. I need to get them transitioned to the big boy bed, and I'm going to finish getting them potty trained before I die. That's on my bucket list. So I, she finally agreed that uh, we would do it at home. So you stop the infusion. You start the methadone 45Q8 with morphine 60Q2 for breakthrough. First couple of days, things are a little rough. But day two, three, she's starting to feel better. Uh, day four, she's really sleepy. Day five, she can't get out of bed. What is the scoop? A, A and Rindy was all washed up. B, research shows there should be a maximum starting dose of methadone. C, you shouldn't have included the breakthrough. Or D, the conversion should have been done over three days instead of a rapid switch. Any clues? Well, I, there is a three-day switch. I'm not fond of it. It's where you keep the current opioid going. You start the methadone and reduce the current regimen by a third. Then you keep the methadone going, you reduce another third day two. Keep the methadone going day three, you finally stop the old regimen, which pharmacokinetically makes sense, but people screw that up too much and too many people die. So I'm not a big fan of that one. So really there should be a maximum starting dose of methadone, no matter how much somebody is on. For example, even though she's young and she had good renal function, she was getting 40 to 50 milligrams an hour of IV morphine. That's a lot of morphine, even for healthy kidneys to get rid of the morphine-3-glucuronide metabolite. So when you think about it, I love Dr. Barrera from MD Anderson's rationale for why we should maybe have a maximum starting dose regardless of what they were on. Because methadone does bind a little bit different. All the opioids bind a little bit differently at the immune receptor. And methadone inhibits the reuptake of serotonin. And importantly, it's an N-methyl-deaspartate receptor antagonist. And just simply being on morphine 40 to 50 milligrams an hour probably is causing a proalgesic effect. It's actually worsening the pain, which is hard to explain to a patient. I love this very brief report by Chatham and colleagues. There are three pharmacists. They reported on 10 patients admitted to their hospital on anywhere from 2 to 11,000 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent per day. Put them all on methadone 10Q8, and that was the magic dose for like nine of them. It, it was a beautiful thing. The American Pain Society guidelines said, don't start at higher than 30 to 40, no matter what, whether they were a heroin user or they were getting an opioid for pain management. So we adopted that as well. So play it again. This is a huge conversion. It would have been better accomplished inpatient. She wouldn't go. Uh, and in real life, she was not on this much, and it was IV dilated. And I did reduce the infusion by a third, and we started the methadone. And then a week later, we reduced it by another third. And then finally, this, the two weeks later, we were able to stop the, and it was dilated infusion. And uh, not only did she get the boys in their big boy bed, she built the bunk beds herself. And she got on potty trained. And then a few days before she died, she was so ill, she transferred to our hospice residential facility, and the boys turned four. So they had a big birthday party at our 
uh, residential facility, and I went to the party, and I said, do you remember me? I'm Lynn. I'm the pharmacist. I talked to you by, the, by phone, and she said, oh, I don't remember you. I'm so tired, and the next day she died, but I still have pictures on my desk of her and the twins. Ugh, don't get me started. We could all be bawling here. No time at all. Last case. The hospice nurse calls and says, you got to help me. And this was a real case, too. My family was on vacation in West Palm Beach. I remember it clearly. I can't figure it out. The guy's 82. He's with us for prostate cancer, meds to brain and bone. He's been doing so well on methadone 5Q12 and oxy 5 to 10 is needed for breakthrough. But over the last couple of days, he's been acting very peculiarly like a drunk monkey. And his pain control is significantly deteriorated. He's ataxic. It's caused him to fall. He hurt his wrist. I don't know what's going on, but I don't think it's his underlying disease. Do you have any great ideas? I said, has the prescriber started any new medications? No. Did anything change at all? Any way, stop, start, increase, decrease, anything in his drug? She said, the only thing that changed is the doctor drew a phenytoin level uh, because, again, he had prostate cancer with mets of the brain. Um, and it came back below the therapeutic range for phenytoin. So the therapeutic range is 10 to 20. It was 7.8. So the doctor increased it, and this is a true story, from phenytoin 300 once a day to 500 once a day. Now, all the pharmacists just went, <gasps> when I said that. Why did they all do that? Because they're thinking, oh, my God, Michaelis and Menton are going to be so unhappy with you. Holy moly, I have figured it out. He's a small, frail, slight man. He's probably malnourished. What's that got to do with it? What is the sitch? So, A, his free fraction of phenytoin probably was therapeutic on 300 a day. B, increasing the phenytoin dose was a very bad idea. His free fraction now is probably supra-therapeutic, and he's toxic. C, he is exhibiting signs of phenytoin toxicity right now. D, the increase in phenytoin dose increased the metabolism of methadone, causing a reduced serum level and increasing its pain. Or E, yes, by golly, they're all true. There we go. Though they are all true. So phenytoin is 90% bound to albumin. So if you look at all the phenytoin in the body, 90% is over here bound to albumin. This 10% is the portion that performs the pharmacologic effect for good and for bad. But if somebody's malnourished, you're going to see a shift. Instead of 90-10, it could be 80-20. But the true therapeutic range of phenytoin is going to be 1 to 2 mics per mil of the free phenytoin. So whenever you get a phenytoin level, get a total and an unbound. Any lab can do that. So I said, oh, my gosh, I figured it out. This guy's toxic. So hold the phenytoin, get a stat level, total and unbound. Eureka, the total was 12.4, which sounds fabulous, right? But his unbound was 2.86, which is like he had a total of 28.6. Clearly, he was toxic. So we held it for several days, lowered it back to 300. And you never want to give 500 in one dose. It can form a bezoar in the stomach, which is like a lump. Uh, but more importantly, he shouldn't have even been on an anticonvulsant. All the guidelines say if somebody has primary metastatic disease to the brain and they've not had a seizure, do not start prophylactic therapy. Because if they're going to seize, they're probably going to seize through whatever you pick anyway. So even the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine says if that, they come to you on an anticonvulsant with no seizure history, taper it off taper it off. So he shouldn't even have been on an anticonvulsant. Having said that, if it's phenytoin and you suspect hypoalbuminemia, get a total and an unbound serum level and look for an unbound of one to two. Never give phenytoin 500 at one time and always consider what's going to happen when you increase the dose of that phenytoin. What questions do you have for me? I think we read about serotonin syndrome a lot. I don't think we see it that often. I would just be familiar with what the signs and symptoms are and just be alert for it.
that's about the best you can do. And somebody asked me, I, we do have some copies of the book. I'm at T8, the exhibit T8, on the fourth row right by registration. And I'll stay up here if you have any more questions. Thank you so much. Thank you.